So today we're going to start the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles. Um, there are three pastoral epistles. One Timothy, two Timothy, and then Titus. So three letters written at different times, all by Paul. And we'll get into why they're called the pastoral epistles, but it seems pretty easy when you think about it. What is a pastor? A pastor is like a shepherd, a person who... Um, is the head of a church, you know, the guiding direction, the person who wards off the evil stuff, keeps the wolf out, but also cares for the people on the inside, right? So it does the pastoral duty. So these are epistles or letters that are written to guys, Timothy and Titus specifically, from Paul, the great apostle, to help their pastoral ministry, right? So some people also consider Philemon to be a pastoral epistle, but it is um, not um, it is truly just a regular epistle, but the difference with it is, is that it's directed at some at uh, Philemon, so it doesn't really meet it. It's, and it's also a prison epistle, so we're just going to focus on the three. Quick background of one Timothy um, before we jump in. So one Timothy was written sometime between sixty-three and sixty-six A.D., and he wrote this letter from Macedonia, which we find in the text. And he was on his way to Nicopolis, uh, and we find references to this right from 1 Timothy 1.3 and Titus 3.12. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church there. And Paul uh, wanted to stay with his friend there, but this letter would have to suffice as like, hey, this is how you're going to do church. This is how you're going to treat people. This is going to love people. This is how you're going to keep the evil out. He's giving him like... The guidelines, if you will, to run the church at Ephesus, okay? There has been some question over time about Pauline authorship, and we've talked about this with other letters, like um, the polemics, if you will, or the skeptical criticism that some people do where they're like, oh, that doesn't look like Paul's writing. So people do this with the pastoral epistles as well. But you're going to remember they're different from other epistles. They're different because... The other epistles are written to churches or written to cities, and these are written to people. So they are written differently. But at the end of the day, I assure you, without getting into the weeds, there's reasonable answers to all this scrutiny, and we can rely on the authorship of Paul for these letters. Who is Timothy? We've gone over Timothy on a couple of occasions, but just as a reminder, he's half Gentile and half Jew, right? And so we even remember that as an adult, Paul had Timothy circumcised so that he could actually minister to the Jew, um, Jews. But his mother was a lady named Eunice. She's a devout believer. We read that in 2 Timothy 1.5. It says this, where Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I assure dwells in you. So Paul believed that Timothy had a great faith that was part of the legacy of what his parents into him specifically his mom and his grandma so as we're coming out of last week and how important our moms are in our life you know one of the guys who gets named specifically in the bible gets his faith um, obviously from the holy spirit but by way of his mom and his grandma so very important that we leave a good legacy um, just to frame what we're looking at here what are these letters these pastoral epistles um, john calvin when he opens in his commentary about one timothy he's a john calvin's a famous reformer the guy who they named calvinism after he said that these letters are not studied as much as the other letters 
right? So they're a different kind of letter. Um, and he said that it's because it's addressed to church leadership and not the people that people don't often read them as much. They have um, looked at much of the other letters to the church because they feel like it's written to them and not just towards leadership. But um, he also said this about the letters. He said that the pastoral epistles abound largely in those doctrinal statements and practical instructions which every Christian ought to carefully study. You know, this is one of the greatest writers, commentarians, reformers, and pastors uh, of the modern era. Um, and, and it's been 400 years, but he was an amazing thinker and believer and teacher. And one of the things he, he believes about the pastoral epistles is that they are rich doctrinal statements, practical instructions for Christians, which if you're like me, like I am that guy. <laughs> I was always that guy in my military career. If you tell me like, do this, this way, I can do that. The very vague things that you give me, I will most likely mess up. And I know a lot of people are like that. And, and I think the, our faith is much like that too, especially when it comes to relationships. We, we exist in a relational faith. God believes in fellowship because it's a triune God. It is fellowship. The church is about fellowship. And we need to learn what those relationships look like. As men, we need to learn what a husband looks like. As wives, we need to learn what a wife, we need to learn how to be parents. All these things. So just to say to somebody, go be a father. Okay. What does that mean? So define it for me. Give me some steps. Give me some practical advice and I can go do that. So I think we, um, we get a lot of those things out of this. So I agree with Calvin on that. So having some really practical instructions for our day-to-day -day, uh, life as Christians is important. So... We're going to do just that. We're going to look carefully at these letters over the next number of weeks. And they contain some, some really solid truths about the church because they are pastoral. We're going to learn about church leadership. We're going to talk about what an elder looks like. We're going to talk about what a deacon looks like, who they are supposed to be. We're going to talk about care of the church, conduct of the church. And unfortunately, a lot of what happens in these letters gets refuted by non-believers, skeptics, and liberal believers today. I mean, it is absolutely horrible what's going on in the kind of the liberal church at large where you could open either one of these three and look at their leadership program and be like, you obviously have not read any of these epistles because they give you instructions for church leadership and you've completely ignored them. Or instead of ignoring them, what they'll do is they'll say, well, that was written specifically to Timothy at that time. And it's like, Okay, so you need to go back and read the rest of the Bible now because these do fit nicely into the canon and they are the truth. So you need to fix your church. And we'll get into some of that stuff as we get there. But we're gonna, let's get into it now. So let's turn to, if you have your Bible, turn into 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 specifically. <coughs> Excuse me. And we're just going to go to 11 today. I know that's a lot of verses, but you'll find that these all fit together. So 1 Timothy 1, 11. And Paul starts out like this. It says, Paul, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give wise, 
rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God, which is by faith. By the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and and an unhypocritical faith. For some, straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the godless, for those who killed their fathers or their mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Okay, so this is a a big introduction, and we'll break it down a little bit, um, and we'll try to make it um, as quick as possible, but by filling as much of it in as we can, because to break this all apart into little pieces would kind of pull away from the fullness of it, if you will. But with the other, like the other epistles, you'll notice Paul opens this thing up with the, the authority statement, right? So he says he is what? He is an apostle. So I, Paul, he's an apostle, right? He had addresses by stating his position of authority. We went over this a long time ago, just make sure it all clear. An apostle meets certain criterion in the Bible, okay? So I, I always like to cover down on that because there's like this big movement where people say that they are apostles. It's a thing. As a matter of fact, one of the big movements that is the basis for one of the large churches in the area that has sprouted some other churches grew out of a movement that believes its leadership is apostolic. And you cannot be an apostle today. It is absolutely impossible by the biblical criterion. And we'll just look at that real quick and we're going to move on. Apostles from the Bible are these three things. Eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Number one, Acts 1, 21 to 22. They are called specifically by Christ. Mark 3, 13 to 16, and Galatians 1, 1 and 2. And they performed signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So I'm just going to let that hang there, if you would like to look at it on your own. But we know that Paul meets all of these things. right? He spent three years with the risen Christ being taught before he went on his ministry to the Gentiles. So if a person calls themselves an apostle today, they're mistaken about the role. Now, you can use the word apostolon, because the word apostolon in the text is translated as apostle, but it's used in two different ways. It's used to mark either the position a person is in, like Paul, or it means the word messenger. So you need to be very careful how we use that word. Um, but you can see here that Paul loves Timothy, right? He calls him his genuine child in the faith. I think that would be, you know, if you had a younger person that you were bringing up and you introduced them as your genuine child in the faith, um, it would be a term of endearment. He cares for him like he's one of his own children. And as he continues on in his opening here, he calls for grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ as he calls to Paul as he's writing to him, right? 
interesting here, interestingly in this, you see that Paul um, has called God already in the opening by a few different names. And I think that's pretty cool that he just continues to refer to God by different things. And it helps to paint a picture of who Paul um, um, looks at God and sees the person of God, the deity of God, and these roles that God uh, fills, like who he is, right? And I love this big pile because it's like a big pile of theological truth all jammed into just like a, hey, here, here's a letter from me. By the way, here who is who God is. So who is God? He's our Savior and our Father. Who is Jesus Christ? He's our hope and our Lord. And we examine the triune God. We find Father, Savior, hope, and Lord all in that opening. And it's really, if you think, that's all the comfort that you need. In a father, that's who you get. The father, the person who provides for you, who gives you safety, who sanctifies you. He's your savior, your hope, and your Lord. Everything that you could possibly need. Anyway, as we move on, Paul goes on to tell Timothy to stay in Ephesus. And we studied Ephesians already. If you remember, we got into Ephesians. Ephesus is a mess. Ephesus is a giant mess. We discussed Ephesus at length. If you remember, um, the goddess Artemis, was the big goddess that was there, or uh, Artemis is what the Greeks called her. It was Diana that the Romans called her. And there's a giant temple there in this sea village where all this trade happens, and that temple is built to Artemis. And at that temple, they would worship Diana or Artemis, and they would um, make idols, right? So there were the idol salesmen. They would make statues and um, well, just for lack of a better, like pornographic type of statues and pictures were produced. And there was a huge sex trade there, prostitution and human trafficking of children. And we talked about that. And there's some rules in the culture about how old you have to be. But essentially, uh, there was children up to a certain age and they had to stop so they could marry them. It's a pretty rough culture that, that it's going on here. Um, so Timothy has his work cut out for him. Right? And if you remember when we studied Ephesus, when Paul ministered there, the Christians that were there were, were outright just laying down the gospel for people, and people were getting saved, and the people who were making idols and selling them were losing their business because people weren't buying them anymore. Because what happens when people get saved is their heart changes. And when your heart changes, you don't do the things that you did before because you realize that those things are from the flesh or that they're evil or that they're sinful, and you stop those things. Remember the, the flip and how this works. We don't stop things to go to Christ. You don't have to fix yourself to go to Christ. You don't have to get better to get saved. You don't have to be clean to present yourself to the Father. You just go dirty and He fixes you. He sanctifies you. And then there's the process of starting to mature and starting to realize these things that are in my life are not holy. They don't set me aside. They're not hagios. They don't make me different from the culture. Remember, when people look at us, they should see somebody that's different. They should see a believer. Again, one of the problems of the contemporary church. People want to build churches that look like the world, let all the sinful stuff in, because we don't like to judge people. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable. No, people should feel uncomfortable in church. They should. I don't mean uncomfortable like you make them not feel welcome. I mean uncomfortable like Something is tugging at my heart because I'm not supposed to be living the way I'm living or thinking the way I'm thinking or loving the way I'm loving. 
So Paul has done that here. He has changed. Well, the Holy Spirit has done it. Christianity makes its way there. People have changed. Timothy's going to stay on the ground and hold the line. He's going to be the pastor of the church there. Think about that role. He is a super young dude in a shipping city full of ridiculous sailors, full of drunkenness and orgies and sex trade. And you're like, hey, I'm going to take this Lance Corporal and be like, hey, here's a radio. Walk that way. Go fix that. Hold it down. And he's like, Roger. That's it. He goes and takes it over. But he's not just there to teach them either. He's there that you, you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. So he is also there to make sure that there's a steadiness to the church, that people don't waver in what is being taught, that they don't add to the gospel or take away from the gospel, that they don't try to teach a different gospel or make it so that it's not the gospel. So he is there to make sure that there's a sound doctrine that continues through the teaching in the church there. Imagine that when you've got the Greek culture and the pre-Gnostic gospel and the Romans and the sinners, and you got this young guy and he's going to basically have to go to people's homes, to temples, and just fix their church. I know people hate this today. People hate it when there's a TV pastor out there who teaches garbage and they're like, that's wrong. Oh, who are you to judge? You know, like, stop. Here's a dude in his 20s who's essentially been called to look at leadership in the local church and say, that is incorrect doctrine. You need to fix yourself. Unapologetic. Why? We'll get into that in a little while. But it's because of who God is, not because of who we are. Because when we love God, we strive to do the things that glorify God, not the things that make us comfortable, especially in the church. So remember, pastoral leadership is never about live and let live. That's not a thing in the church. We don't live and let live, right? The shepherd never lets the wolf into the flock. We think of shepherding, I, I, I think we always think this neat um, mid-medieval period picture of Jesus, blonde hair, long blue eyes, white flowy robe, staff, and there's sheep following through the field and the grass is rich. I don't know if you've ever been around sheep. Have you been around where they walk? Well, first of all, they walk and eat out of their own poo. So that's what sheep are like in the church. They also like to follow the butthole in front of them. And they'll do it right off a cliff to a fault because that's the way sheep are. He calls us sheep for a reason, right? If you've ever seen a sheep when they're young, they're very pretty, they're very clean. The older they get, the thicker their hair gets, the stinkier they get, right? That's like walking through the world. So... When you shepherd a flock, there is a lot to do to make sure that they're safe, they stay together, that they eat well. But when a wolf comes to the flock, do you think it's the shepherd's job to tell the sheep, hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to let the wolf in and we're going to assimilate. Let's not judge the wolf. Let's, let's make the wolf comfortable and then maybe the wolf will assimilate. No, he takes that rod and he beats the living lights out of the wolf. He gets it out. The shepherd's job is to realize that it's a wolf before it makes its way in and starts murdering the sheep. That is really important. And I'm sure it was the same back then, but today, most specifically, people hate it. Oh, you're judging me. Yes. Yes, I'm judging you. 
What you're doing is breaking down the believers around me with the garbage that you're bringing in. It's not Christ-like. Here's the Bible. Read it. Repent from your sin. Believe. Get saved. And then we come back and we can talk about you entering into my flock. Would you do it? If you owned sheep, and that's how you lived your life, was to drive sheep. Not in the Christian sense, but to sell for meat, to sell for wool. If a wolf came, would you just let him eat the sheep and just talk to him nicely the whole time he was there? What sense? That doesn't make any sense. You would be a horrible farmer, okay? So this is the sense that he looks at when he's telling him to, he has to be a good shepherd there. When false teaching comes in, you drive it away. And Paul's telling him he has this authority. You've got the authority, Timothy. You go do this. He talks to him about myths and endless genealogies that are being taught. They're probably references to some sort of pre-Gnostic thought or teaching or maybe some higher Greek thought. That really doesn't amount to anything. It's just jabber, 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 jabber. You know, people do this in the church today. Um, um, and I even, I, I, so I love religious stuff, right? And I study the religious stuff all the time. But sometimes you can get into stuff where people are actually just talking. And it, it's not, there's no means to the end. It's just talk and thought. If it doesn't glorify God, it might not really be all that useful. But they are doing this in a sense that they're just talking um, and it's not useful at all. If any of you guys have ever watched TV, I don't watch much TV or watch the news much anymore. But have you ever watched like C-SPAN where Congress is on and they're like in that room together debating? That's what I think of when I think of this. Because like nobody's actually coming to any conclusions and they're all in our tax dollars are paying them to just sit in a room and run on at the mouth about nothing anyway that's what i think it's all circular it doesn't mean anything paul doesn't want that useless talk to lead people away from the faith right it just causes people to question the faith like what does this really do for me if you're just sitting in here pontificating about a bunch of useless stuff what does it do but what paul tells timothy next is not only the center of the study today when i wrote at the top of the page if you ever look at my notes i usually write like a theme at the top like because i've read it and i've read it and i've prayed on it i'm like oh this is kind of what paul's getting at um, it's, it's such a rich truth for the way that we should lead and practice in a church. It's the way the body of Christ should exist in truth. But listen to this. He says this in this next first, <clears throat> excuse me, but the goal of our command is love from a pure heart. The goal of our command, the goal of what Paul is commanding to Timothy is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. That's like the center of what he is telling to Timothy to do. In the midst of all the other instructions that he's about to give him over the next two letters, he is beginning with this statement, love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. That's it. It's about practicing faith, he's telling him, right? This is how you practice your faith. We love people because we want them to be saved. Not because we want to have them in our church. That whole, if you build it, they will come idea. Not, let's get everybody in Moore County into our church. No. We preach the gospel so that people will be touched by Christ and saved. Whether they're in our church or somebody else's. We don't want people to believe like us because they agree with us and they believe like us. We want people to believe in Jesus Christ so that when they die or Christ comes back, whichever comes first, they get to be with the Father in eternity. That's it. 
Doesn't matter your color, your creed. Doesn't matter your neighborhood. Setting aside all the stuff that the church has done with the wokeism and the racial divisions, these people need to be paid more attention to than those people. Set all that stuff aside. Reach people for Jesus. That is it. Practical, practicing faith. We want people to be saved. We know the value of our salvation. We know the value of our salvation. We want other people to have that. We want to have a good conscience in it, right? We are, we are doing everything in our, in, in our power and in our might to keep a clear conscience and all of it. Love and a good conscience. All that we do in all of our worship, and we're never hypocritical. We are never hypocritical. Imagine being a person who's never hypocritical. Oof. I'm probably the biggest hypocrite in the room. It's just true. So there you go. I'm a hypocrite. I do my very best to live holy. I do my very best to love my wife and my children well, to bring you guys the truth. But my life is inconsistent because I am a sinner and I have to work constantly at it. But this is the charge that he's giving him. Make sure you're doing it unhypocritically. Live your faith out. Don't just speak it. Live your faith out. Don't just speak it. But also speak it. Don't just live it. Because we need to bring the gospel to people by speaking it to them. So that old term, practice what you preach. And we're going to get some really great examples from Paul on how some people in the church are not practicing what they preach. And he's going to go into this. And we read the list. Paul says that some have strayed from these things and they've turned aside to fruitless discussion about things, right? And this is applicable today. With the advent of social media, you guys, have you seen that machine, the one that the Googles come up on? Right? And you can look all over the world and all those different things. Social media, the speed and abundance of information that you can get is, is, is unreal. But a lot of the stuff is just not true, right? And it's, it gets worse and worse. It gets worse all the time. But it's specifically in this case addressing false teachers. And these false teachers, just like they are today, they preach a pile of different things that are incorrect. And I don't mean false. He, he's being very clear about ones that are trying to you know, eat their way into the church. Not people who teach like a completely different religion. But false teachers, this self-help, self-righteous, affirmational gospel that's simply not true. You can make yourself good. Or you can find your goodness in your actions. That's what the law really did, right? That's when Paul talks about the law. The law is good. And he says it here. The law is good for those who know the law. The law was given to them for their own good. But Paul uses their desire to teach the law as an example. First, they don't desire to teach the truth. It's like, why is somebody teaching? And if you look at the world today and you look at especially a lot of like prosperity guys on TV and big ones on TV, they don't desire to even speak the truth. It's not even in their heart to want to teach the truth. They desire to teach that their actions or their perception of righteousness is what's, what is right and good, not Jesus Christ. It's out of their own selfishness or their own self-righteousness or whatever that is, but it's not out of a desire to honor God and honor the word of God and to want people to be saved for their own soul so that God be glorified. 
And the law is going to expose all the awful stuff that's in a person. And just like the false teachers today who are distorting the gospel, they will be found guilty. There's a simple truth. And Paul says that there's a long list of things that are contrary to the right relationship with God. And he goes through this list. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just an example of a few. But it's truly a list of things that can be directly related to sins against the flesh. Just like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He's talking about sins that are against the flesh. And we're going to look at these and you'll see that they actually correlate to the Ten Commandments. And he starts with this list. The lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, unholy and godless people, they, they reject God. That's what they do. They turn themselves away from God. They don't even care. I'm going to go teach the law. I'm going to go teach self-righteousness. I'm going to go teach another gospel. They just do it. They, they completely reject who God is. They reject his teaching. And this is the first commandment, right? First commandment. That's it. When you reject God, you reject the first commandment. Those who reject God are trying to find righteousness in their own works, in some way, or selfishness, or whatever that may be. Within the church, it's about doing things. It's legalism. Outside the church is, well, what if I'm just a good person? To my, it's my response, especially with my friends at work, because we're able to be a little more edgy with each other. It's like, but what if I'm just good? My answer is, you're not good. That's it. Well, but what if it, no, you're not good. You don't even know what the standard is, so how do you know what good is? So I'm going to put the standard here for good. Are you that good? Well, I might not be that good. Okay, then you're not good. That's it. There's one standard. It's Jesus. He then gets into, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers. This is the fifth and sixth commandments. Honor your mother and father, and then do not murder. Fifth and sixth commandments. It's directly related to the value of human life. And I don't mean, this isn't capital punishment. This is murder of passion. And I just want to make it clear, yes, this includes the murdering of innocent life in the womb. That's it. Abortion is murder. I've got this thing where I've been going back and forth with some family, and I've even had family call me straight out. Are you saying I'm a murderer? I'm saying you need to repent. Yes, it was murder. And it doesn't need to be held against you because we have a Savior that can forgive anything. And I'm sorry you went through that in your life. But the reality is people need to hear that it's murder. Because it's breaking people. Not only is it killing a child, but if you start digging in and looking at how some of the lives of people who've gone through this, especially young ladies, goes, is that they grow and then they grow to a place in their life where there's regret. It hurts them because it's unnatural to kill another human, especially an innocent one. So we just need to make sure we're, they're using the right words. Because when we try to dance around them and keep it pretty and undirty, it diminishes what sin really is, which is rejection of God. It's doing it my own way. Well, you, were, you didn't really know, so it's not really sinful. <laughs> no, it's still sin. The next one he talks about is, is homosexuals. And this ties to the seventh commandment about committing adultery. Bodie Bauckham's got this sermon that I watched, and it's interesting because what he wants to say is, I think we should bring back the word sodomy. Because we've minimized what it means, 
And instead of using a word that carries a bunch of weight in the English language, we like to dance around the word so that it doesn't seem as offensive. But I, I want to explain that word a little bit because there's been some pushback against this word. So I'm going to lay it out for you so you'll never worry about it again. I know we all wrestle with the idea of homosexuality. We, everybody in the room has a friend that's a homosexual or somebody who's dealt with these things in their lives. But the reality is God is clear that there's a specific relationship. He built us man and woman and the, the relationship is between a man and a woman and everything else. Oh, by the way, and that's within the confines of a marital relationship and that's it. So let's talk about the word just for a second. We're, this whole thing isn't about that, but I just wanna make sure since the word is there, we're covering it. Quick explanation of the word, or senokoites, there's some videos going around that wrongly interpret the word in Greek. And they say that it's meant to be men having sex with children. And that it was a thing about pedophilia and specifically for like young slaves where men were enslaving young ones and they were having sex with them. That's, and it is absolutely incorrect. And any one of these guys that goes through that has never studied Greek before because when they try to break it down, they are just getting it all wrong and they're making it messier. It's not true. The word is used twice by Paul in the New Testament. It's used here in this verse and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and it's a compound word. Compound word is taking two words, sticking them together, making another word, right? So this word, aren, <clears throat> excuse me, arsen, which is male, a man, and then it used koitai, which either mean, it means to bed or bed. Specifically, the marriage bed. Get, picking up what I'm putting down? The marriage bed, or to have intercourse with. So it's literally the term that Paul uses to say men having sex with men. That's it. It doesn't mean anything else. Moving on, he uses kidnappers. That's the next one. Remember the context of Ephesus. We were talking about that in Ephesians. There's a lot of that child trade going on. So this addresses it specifically kids are being trafficked the eighth commandment is stealing so if you're stealing humans you are stealing things and then of course we could directly tie that into uh, seventh commandment as well next he covers perjurers that's correlation to the ninth commandment about being a false witness and if you want to look at this if you go back we take today's study if you go to um, Exodus 20, you can pull up the Ten Commandments and you can just look at those at Exodus 20 and you'll see how, I mean, Paul's a brilliant guy, but he's also a Jew, right? So he knows the Ten Commandments well. And when he lists these out, they just so happen to fit so nicely. Remember, the commandments are built in two sections. One are about God and the rest are about man. So six through ten, he has covered neatly in this group. So he sums it all up by saying, you can put it really any sin in there and it's contrary to sound teaching. So what is sound teaching? So remember, what is Timothy here to do? Lead the church, pastor the church, guide the church, mentor the church. He's given this command. So that which he states in the 11th verse is this. This is the last verse of our study. He says, this is sound teaching. According to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which... I have been entrusted. So sound teaching is according to the gospel of glory of the blessed God, which would I have been entrusted. If it's anything else, it's not sound teaching. So what, what Paul is beginning his letter to Timothy here is the importance of sound teaching 
And it's the foundation of a pastoral ministry. It's the foundation of how the church comes together. If there's not sound teaching when you come together, don't go. If you go to a church and their faith statement is incorrect, don't go. If you go to a church and they teach something that is wrong, don't go thinking that it will get better or the pastor will learn or develop. No, don't go. If it's not sound teaching, it's wrong. I'll tell you, I've made this mistake as a young believer. We've sat in places where I was like, uh, maybe, no, if it's not, I mean, ask, look, people say things incorrectly. I remember when we first started this, I, and I corrected myself the next week, I'd made the statement out loud, Carol and I, you know, we're married, we're going to be married forever. And then I'd, like, I was like, oh man, I, we're not going to be married forever. We're only going to be married until we die, right? Because there's not marriage in heaven. So people will say things wrong accidentally, right? You talk for a while, you get a little cotton mouth, your brain gets caught up in your words. That's different than teaching something that's incorrect. So if you have a question, ask, ask it of the pastor who should never be upset that you're asking a question about what's being taught. And if they are, then there's a problem, right? They're there to guide you. So sound teaching is the, the foundation of it all. And here, desiring to teach the law, desiring to teach self-righteousness, desiring to teach that right and good come from within a person, those are all sinful. You can't do it yourself. We've talked about this. And they all deny God, which is the important thing to remember. When you're teaching something that's incorrect, you're basically saying, God, I know better than you. I'm going to teach what I want to teach. I'm not going to teach what you should have me teach out of the word of God. And I'm going to tell you, I had a dilemma a couple of weeks ago. So I had this dilemma. And you all know that we've, we started out, we started in Galatians, and we just started reading through the Bible. We're going verse by verse by verse, and, and, and I like it that way. That's the way I like to study. It's the way I like to read. And I know like a lot of churches, they'll do topics, and they'll jump around. And it, I think that's fine to do topical teachings, but I, I like learning the history and the foundation, and I think it helps set a context for us. So when you get halfway through a book, you know what the context is, because that's important for learning. But we moved out of that line-by-line -line teaching to cover some things that I thought were, were just kind of on my mind, on my heart, that might be useful for us. And they're relevant things in culture. And they're applicable to us in our lives and the way we conduct the church. But I've been wanting to cover sexuality for a while, and I've been talking about it, and I talked about it with Chad, and I talked about it with Carol, and I'm like, I want to cover sexuality because the world is just full of this stuff. Like, our kids are over-sexualized. It's on TV, and like, TV has changed so much lately, and Stories of all this stuff has changed so much, right? And it's leaking its way into the church. And I've wanted to cover it. But I also wanted to get back on track with studying the pastoral epistles. And so we're going to get into the pastoral epistles, but then you open 1 Timothy 1, and obviously it talks about sexuality a bit. So I don't want to stick on it, but I just want to cover something. But something that hit me pretty hard this week, is, and I was preparing for this, and I was reading as I had a, a meeting with somebody. And... Um, and I started to really consider what I was reading and what I was thinking about sexuality. Um, but in the last few months, it's been weighing on me a little bit. And I think it should, for all of us, as believers, but also as just adults living in the United States and the world today, that over-sexualization of our children in the country and that satanic, I said it, trans movement that's going around that's getting our kids to deny their creator 
and deny who they were created to be. Have you guys seen this news about Target? Have you seen this stuff? They are making tuck shorts and breast binders for children who want to transition. That is, that is not allowing people to be who they want to be. That is adults grooming children to be something God did not create them to be. And I know we won't shop there. They're going to build a brand new one in Southern Pines. I will not go. I will tell everybody who goes, if I see you with a Target bag, you will hear from me that you are supporting pedophilia. I will say it to your face. You're gonna, people need to hear it. Especially if they go to your church or if you know they're in their neighborhood and they're a believer, you need to tell them. Maybe they haven't seen it. They need to know. Um, we'll never shop there. We also refused to give Netflix our money because of the pedophilia that they were putting out a few years ago. I don't remember what the name of the show was, but if, if you support pedophilia, if you support hurting kids and over-sexualization to kids, I'm not giving you my money. And I suggest other people do as well. But most recently, I'm having this conversation with somebody and, you know, as most of my conversations go, it ends up where you talk about God. We talk about faith. We talk about Jesus. Where are you at? This is where I am. Let's talk about that and let's get it out on the table because you're going to hear the gospel from me at some point. We were talking about church and this lady says she's a believer. She doesn't go to church, but she's a believer. She has a hard time going to church and it's because of somebody who she knows that's trans. Because she feels like the church is rejecting trans people and trans people are not welcome in the church. So we talked about that a little bit. This idea that God loves everybody, so just welcome into your church. God loves everybody, welcome them in. And I get the dilemma. Like, I understand the dilemma. Because I don't want people to not feel loved. I don't want people to not feel welcome. I don't want people to feel like we are stiff-arming them because they're sinners because that's not what happens but one i don't think churches are i mean there might be a couple real fundamental weirdos out there and i know like westboro baptist church they're not a church I mean, they're not, they're unbelievers anyway but churches aren't turning away sinners <laughs> that's just not a thing it's that people who are sinful are so convicted in their sin that they're afraid to go into a church because they're afraid to be judged and i get that too but that's a starting point to be afraid i think it's a cop-out Really? And it's, it's not a good truth statement to make. Anyway, while we're studying this section on 1 Timothy, that conversation, it came back to me. As I was thinking about talking to this lady and this person that she knows, and she doesn't feel like people are welcome. And um, as I was talking to her, it, I, I started to realize this isn't one of those things where we just have a, a, a difference of opinion, right? Um, this idea that we're just all believers and we all believe different and we should all be able to be who we are and practice the way we want to practice. And God just accepts us all into the church. This is the thing that we have to make clear as Paul is setting the stage for this pastoral ministry. When this sinfulness is lived out in your life, you are denying God. You deny God when you sin. It's what Adam did in the garden, is he denied who God was. God said, don't do this. The serpent comes in and tells Eve, because it's her fault. That was a joke for the girls. Anyway. <laughs> and then Eve tells Adam, eat of it, and he sins. He denies 
what God says, this is good and right for you. Do this, don't do that. Live like this, don't live like that. And Adam says, I can do it my way. That's what all this sinfulness is. Preaching a false gospel, bringing in the law, self-righteousness, self-help, living through all this sinfulness that the law exposes and saying it's okay to do that is really looking at God in face and saying, I can be a believer, I've got it done my way and what you say is unimportant. It denies God. But I want to go back to that goal statement. You remember midway through his goal, love from a pure heart? The goal of his command is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. We can only have sound doctrine when we stand against false doctrine. Good doctrine stands in the face of bad doctrine. True doctrine stands in the face of false doctrine. A false way to God. A self-righteous path. We should only teach according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, as Paul finishes in this section. And you know where this starts, friends? Do you know where this teaching starts? It doesn't start here in Chad's living room on Sunday. It starts in your house. It starts with you. It starts with you opening the word of God. It starts with you studying and you praying and you building yourself up and writing the word of God on your heart. It starts in your home. Don't add or take away from the gospel. Don't try to fit your ideals or your sin into it. I get it. We're all sinful. Don't try to justify it with God. Just repent from him and ask for his forgiveness. If you have sin, deal with it. Don't be hypocritical. Minister to people in good conscience, knowing when you tell them, I love you and I want you to be saved. And they'll be like, oh, you're more, you know, you're holier than thou. I am a sinner like you who needs a savior like Jesus. That's who I am. We cannot love from a pure heart if we sugarcoat the gospel. That's really the bottom line. You can't love people from a pure heart if you're sugarcoating the gospel and making it something else that it is not. And just as Paul was entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, as a believer, so am I entrusted with it. And as believers, so are you. So if you are in here today and you call yourself a believer, you cannot love people from a pure heart, not understanding that you are entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You are entrusted with the gospel to bring it to people, to preach it to people, to share it with people, and to love people from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart, love people well, and tell them the truth. Father God, I am thankful for you today. I am thankful for all these people who've come here to study your word. And we just ask that for this church group that you continue to have us move forward in sound doctrine that we study your word well that we rightly exposit the word of truth that we glorify you through your word that we glorify you through your actions that we glorify you through the service that we have for one another the way we love each other is expressed through how we treat and love one another daily as we lay our lives down for each other we ask you to enrich all of our marriages and love our children well, Lord. We leave a legacy for them, bringing them up in you. I ask that you bless our beautiful community, Lord, that you open it, that we may be able to preach this gospel through all of it, that people may be saved, that they may know you. 
that a right and true gospel reach all the hearts here, that many may be saved, that many may know you, that your name be glorified, and all of our blessings are asked in the name of our holy and precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.